0: You are listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello, and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today, I'm going to discuss, or in this episode, I should say, I'm going to discuss esophageal varices, and they result from individuals who have liver cirrhosis with subsequent portal vein hypertension. And if you listened at all to the liver 101 and cirrhosis podcast, um, that's a good review to understand why portal hypertension is a big problem when the liver has become cirrhosed. In a nutshell, if I'm to explain it in 10, 15 seconds, the liver becomes scarred leading to cirrhosis, blood cannot get into the liver because it's been scarred. And even this, there's scarring on that narrows the portal vein itself. And the portal vein is fueling blood from the intestines, the liver, the spleen, the pancreas, from basically your your guts. It's taking blood from there and putting it through the liver to be filtered first past f- effector phenomenon. And it can't get through, so it has to go somewhere. And it basically backs up and fills and engorges itself, leading to varices in both the stomach, which we call gastric varices, and the esophagus, which we call esophageal varices. And we correlate esophageal varices more heavily with portal vein hypertension because they make up about 80% of the varices in this disorder, with gastric varices being roughly 20% of the problem. Gastric varices sit really high in the stomach. Esophageal varices sit fairly low in the esophagus. And esophageal varices are very fragile. I mean, they're all super fragile. But when you think about the esophagus, and what it is responsible for. As we eat and consume things, if you have an esophageal varicea and let's say you are eating chips, for example, and if you've ever eaten a chip that you didn't quite chew up or masticate into a paste and you feel that scratching as it goes down your esophagus, in the event, for example, that you had an esophageal varicea there, you could then potentially rupture that And a ruptured esophageal varicea very quickly becomes an airway problem, which is a medical emergency. So in today's episode, I'm going to do the nitty gritty basics on esophageal varices and what our nursing interventions are going to be in sort of the treatment that one might consider or that you should be aware of, especially as you're going through your own schooling. So with that, let's just get right into it. Okay. Esophageal varices, they're basically defined as either dilated and or torturous veins in the submucosa of the esophagus caused by portal hypertension. And it's often associated with liver cirrhosis. And they're at really high risk of rupturing if portal circulation, right, the portal vein hypertension remains high. And so In effect, what we want to do is we want to reduce the portal vein hypertension to help reduce the chance that a patient might suffer from an esophageal or a gastric variceal rupture because the bleeding varices are a medical emergency. So the whole goal of treatment is A, if it ruptures, control the bleeding first and foremost, Um, But ultimately, we want to try to prevent portal hypertension from remaining at high pressures so that it does not put additional strain and stress on the very fragile varices that are in both the gastric system and the esophageal system. So patients can have a wide variety of esophageal varices. They can be small, they can be large. Larger varices are more likely to bleed, and that makes sense just because it's A bigger varicea, which means there's more pressure inside of it, and they have a higher likelihood of like if you swallow a bad chip, and that might be a very terrible example, but if you swallow a chip that you didn't quite chew up and you feel it scratching the inside of your throat as you go down, a larger varicee is just a bigger target for it to hit. So that is one of the things that you want to consider. The main therapeutic goal, again, as I said earlier, for both esophageal and gastric varices is ultimately to prevent bleeding and variceal rupture by reducing the portal pressure. And the way that we would probably go about that is we are going to do a few different approaches. Typically... We have both medications that we can give and or there's endoscopic therapy that can be used. And from a pharmacology standpoint, the therapy for portal hypertension includes the use of like non-selective beta blockers. And the two most commonly utilized ones to help treat portal hypertension are propanolol and nadolol. Uh, there is also endoscopic therapy. And this is usually the first line of treatment for variceal bleeding. And that means that we are either going to band, it's called banding, or sclerotherapy. Now, banding is a procedure where a gastroenterologist basically uses rubber bands. And during an endoscopic procedure, where they they stick a camera down these patients' throats to look at the inside of their esophagus, And find the esophageal varices during this procedure. When they go to band, they use those rubber bands. um, They use rubber bands to block off the blood vessel to stop it from bleeding. So. When you think about what a varicose looks like or if you've ever seen like a varicose vein on the back of someone's calf, you can you t- can see that they're like very bulging. And so what the gastroenterologist will do is they basically go in and they wrap a rubber band around that bulge to create a tourniquet like effect. Um, and this helps to stop any potential bleeding or it, it basically uh, in a very like general and I'm not a gastroenterologist, so don't hold this against me like this is not my 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 jam. But basically by putting that rubber band on the esophageal varice, it constricts it enough to where that fragile tissue, right? It reduces the pressure in that blood flow, which reduces the likelihood of rupture. Now, the other option that they can use from an endoscopic approach is called sclerotherapy. And that's when, um I haven't seen that used nearly as much, but maybe it's just where I have worked that I, I didn't see it. I saw banding a lot, but sclerotherapy is when They will actually inject a blood clotting solution directly into the varicea to um, help prevent it from bleeding or to get it to stop bleeding. And again, those medications, the non-selective beta blockers, can be used alone or in some sort of combination with the endoscopic therapy to sort of reduce the pressure in the varices and further reduce the risk of any potential bleeding. Now, they so beta blockers can also be used to prevent first variceal hemorrhage in patients with varices that they are felt to be at risk for bleeding. So if someone has an esophageal variceal and the gastroenterologist has made a determination that they're really worried about the potential for bleeding, they can just give them the beta blockers um, and use that to prevent the variceal hemorrhage from occurring. Esophageal variceal banding, right, where we put those rubber bands on the varices on the inside of their throat has also been used for that purpose, especially in patients who cannot take the beta blockers. So there are a few different approaches that they can use to reduce portal vein pressures. One is a beta blocker reduces pressures overall. Two, they can also give diuretics to help with fluid buildup if that's one of the big precursors behind why the portal vein has so much hypertension inside of it. And then, of course, we, during an upper endoscopy procedure, they can use banding or sclerotherapy to basically tourniquet off potential areas of bleeding. Now, from a nursing perspective, right? Treatment bar none, is to prevent ruptures at all costs. So what this means is if your patients, you're meeting them in your clinical setting, and if they come in and they have a history of liver cirrhosis and in their chart, or they themselves tell you that they have had esophageal varices before, you do not want to stick anything down the esophagus that could potentially rupture those varices like a nasogastric tube. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to be the one having worked, you know, a few years in an emergency room to be the one that sticks a nasogastric tube down someone's throat and then scrapes a large esophageal varicea and causes it to rupture because now I've got an airway problem that I need to worry about. The other big things that we want to do is we want to encourage patients who have liver cirrhosis and especially if they've got the development of these uh, gastric or esophageal varices to not drink to abstain if they can completely from alcohol, because alcohol is just going to make the liver cirrhosis worse. Similarly, we want to encourage them to not take aspirin, no anti-inflammatories and no NSAIDs. We don't want to further predispose these individuals to bleeding. And when you think back about what the liver does, and part of the Um, production cycle is that it helps to make coagulation factors. When we have this portal hypertension and the blood backflows into the spleens, that's also preventing like platelets from getting out and we're not making coagulation factors. These patients are already at risk for bleeding and we don't want to continue to exacerbate that. So if your patient with esophageal varices does come in and they have some sort of bleeding, um, as soon as blood hits the stomach and kind of mixes with the acid, it starts to get um, quite gross. And that... Uh, A lot of blood in the stomach and that iron content makes these individuals very nauseous and they end up throwing up quite a bit, which is why a provider may or may not write for a nasogastric tube to decompress the stomach and to remove all of those contents so that they don't feel that way. The problem with this, right, is when they start throwing up, they are increasing pressures in their abdominal and their thoracic cavities, which will additionally predispose them to continued variceal bleeding. All this to say that uh, patients with cirrhosis should have an upper endoscopy or EGD is how it's abbreviated often to screen for the presence of varices so that their healthcare providers can be aware of and be know that these patients do or do not have variceal bleeding. Now, in the event that the varices do start to bleed, the supportive measures, first and foremost, it's going to be to maintain their airway. And we have a few treatment options that we can do for that. So not only are you monitoring their vital signs and doing all of that, but you would also consider putting in some sort of internal um tourniquet of a tube. The one that I can think of off the top of my head and it's name brand and by no means do I have any financial support from them, but it's a sangastatin Blakemore tube. And it's a tube that's inserted into the esophagus and the stomach, and then it's inflated. And essentially what it does is it creates an internal tourniquet to stop some of the bleeding that is occurring from the esophageal varices so that it does the person effectively doesn't bleed out. And so once that is inserted then they would then go off to interventional radiology or wherever it is that they decide to take these patients in order to more fully and completely address the variceal bleeding, but in the in the immediate like period of time as a nurse you would want to have some sort of you know tube that can be put into their esophagus to Be inflated to then apply pressure on the inside to prevent continued bleeding from occurring. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind the scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons, on an exclusive full access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Dr. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field, we've got something for everyone. Now, when we think about different types of supportive treatment and measures of course if this person is bleeding from a variceal from, a, from an esophageal variceal then we have to think about okay now they are hemorrhaging and if they're hemorrhaging what are we going to be looking for and how are we going to treat that and that's going to consist of monitoring their vital signs monitoring their hemoglobin and hematocrit values In addition to their coagulation factors. Again, if someone has esophageal varices as a result of liver cirrhosis, they're not making those coagulation factors inside the liver. It's one of the productive production items that the liver makes. And if the liver is damaged, they're not going to make it, which means they are not going to be able to clot effectively. So we want to be able to monitor that because treatment options here are going to be blood products so we would give them a blood transfusion or give them clotting factors as prescribed that might be fresh frozen plasma that might be packed red blood cells perhaps we might be giving them um vitamin k or some sort of proton pump inhibitor we can even give antibiotics and things like that and then give iv fluids as prescribed to restore that fluid volume and electrolyte imbalance with all of this, another the nursing intervention is going to be to monitor their intake and output. Again, if your patient has some sort of esophageal varicy, um, then you would want to, while you're monitoring their vital signs, again, keep their head of bed elevated because if they do start to bleed on the inside, the worst thing that I could imagine, at least from my perspective, and perhaps this is incorrect in many viewpoints. But if your patient is laying flat and an esophageal varicea starts to bleed, where's that blood going to go? It's either going to go into the stomach or, conversely, into the airway. And blood in an airway is very, very bad. Blood in a stomach is also bad, but I can't imagine that the airway compromise doesn't trump an upset stomach. So again, keep the head of the bed elevated. And because we're worried about this aspect of bleeding and we're monitoring their vital signs, and it's not just monitoring their vital signs, we're watching for tachycardia, hypotension, things that would be indicative of fluid volume loss. You also would want to monitor for orthostatic hypotension. So when you do get them out of bed, or if ever you were to get this particular patient out of bed, depending on when you're interacting with them in the severity of their disease process, You just would want to be cognizant of when they go from like a reclined laying position to a sitting position, does their blood pressure drop enough to demonstrate orthostatic hypotension? Because the worst thing you could then possibly do is stand that patient straight up, have their blood pressure drop, they get lightheaded and dizzy because now they're not adequately perfusing their brain, they pass out and now they've fallen to the floor. The other components, because we're worried about airway here, is going to be monitoring lung sounds and for the presence of any respiratory distress. And how I think that would manifest is if blood from an esophageal varice was then to get into the trachea and down into the lungs and cause a lot of problems in that sense, because we would want to maximize their oxygen-carrying capacity for the blood that they do have circulating, so give them some oxygen as prescribed to prevent tissue hypoxia if that's a concern. Then... Make sure that these patients are on NPO status. They're not allowed to eat or drink anything. Again, think back to that chip phenomenon. If you eat a chip just the wrong way and now you've got a chip sliding down your your gullet with a sharp edge, it can, you know, puncture potentially the esophageal varicy, and Now you're bleeding and now you have to worry about an airway issue and you need to worry about them bleeding out from the inside of their esophagus. Now, I was always taught, and one of the resources that I read recently, it did say that one of the interventions that you would do as a nurse taking care of a patient with an esophageal varicy was, in fact, to insert an NG tube or balloon tamponade. Now, I would have zero hesitation to say, yes, I will assist in inserting a balloon tamponade because if I'm doing that, like the Sengestatin Blakemore tube, it's because they're literally bleeding. And if I don't do anything about that, they'll probably perish as a result of their bleeding and or they will aspirate their own blood, end up with some sort of aspiration ammonia from their blood while they've lost blood volume. So I, I would without hesitation assist with inserting a balloon tamponade as prescribed because that is what is going to be placed to help stop or to reduce the bleeding that is occurring. Now I was always taught and still to this day I would, I would pause. I would probably hesitate if someone said, Hey, put an NG tube in because of that fear for not wanting to continue to rupture. Uh, an esophageal varicea that maybe hasn't broken open or isn't currently bleeding. I would always pause with that personally. And then I think from there, uh from a nursing perspective, you would want to prepare to assist with giving medications that would induce vasoconstriction to help reduce the bleeding in addition to the balloon tamponade that might be placed um, and, and ultimately, like, if someone comes in with an esophageal varicie and you place a balloon tamponade like a sangastatin likemore tube, ultimately, like, th- the way that this gets solved is they're probably going to have to go for some sort of endos- endoscopic procedure or surgical procedure to stop the bleeding fully. So. From a nursing perspective, at that point, the next thing that you would be doing would be preparing that client for the procedure or the surgical procedure. Now, again, some of those procedures are going to be endoscopic like sclerotherapy or banding like variceal ligation is how you will also call it, hear it called. Uh, variceal ligation is where they place that rubber band on the varices and It kind of helps to reduce the bleeding versus the sclerotherapy where that is an injection of a sclerosing agent into and around those bleeding varices, which kind of help the blood to coagulate and then it helps to stop the bleeding. There are also shunting procedures that can be performed. So, and shunting is just where they shift the blood away from the esophageal varices. The one that I'm most familiar with is called a TIPS procedure, and that's a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. And that's basically where it's done through interventional radiology. Um, where they use normal vascular anatomy of that liver to create a shunt with the use of a stent. And that shunt is between the portal and the systemic venous system in the liver, and it's really aimed at relieving portal hypertension. And this shunt is basically a low resistance channel um, between the hepatic vein. So a hepatic vein is where the blood leaves the liver back into the inferior vena cava to return to the heart. So they attach a shunt to one of the hepatic veins and to an intrahepatic brand of the portal vein, where they will basically use an angiographic technique and they stitch in this shunt between the portal vein and a hepatic vein so that it reduces the pressure inside that portal vein that is being filtered in through the liver. And the advantages of this is that it functions like a surgical side-to-side portocavial shunt and um, that's created, but it's minimally invasive and without the risks associated with major surgery. So you, that is the most frequently common shunt that I've seen placed or talked about. There are other ones like a mesocavial shunt that involves a side astemosis with a superior mesenteric vein to that proximal end of the inferior vena cava. If you didn't understand anything that I just said in terms of that shunt, You're not alone because I also don't understand that. From a nursing perspective, I know that we put in shunts. Tips, that transjungular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt is the most common one that I have seen in my personal nursing practice. That doesn't mean that's the only one. But essentially, if a patient is getting a shunt that is placed due to esophageal varices to reduce the pressure inside that portal vein, then it's literally what it's doing is it's just... Uh, assisting or reducing the blood flow pressures in that portal vein and circumventing a portion of the liver. Hopefully that makes sense. All in all, when we think about esophageal varices, like the key takeaway should be that it is the resultant of liver failure and or cirrhosis and it's the res- it's because there's too much pressure in the portal vein that engorged all of those vessels up along the gastric system and into the esophagus. And if we rupture them, bad news bears. And these patients have the chance to bleed out. Potentially, they have airway compromise. And so understanding that, what are your key nursing interventions that you're going to do if they're bleeding out a stop the bleeding this that's part of the abcs right so that might be a balloon tamponade that you have to insert that might be that they have to go to interventional radiology for some sort of banding and or sclerotherapy but stop the bleeding and then replace what they've lost whether that's fluid whether that's blood electrolytes and manage it that way in a in a perspective that allows these clients to be successfully discharged. So that's all I've got for esophageal varices. It's the nitty gritty of it that I've compiled together. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to the email listed in the podcast description. If there's a topic you would want me to cover, again, reach out and send me an email. I don't know that I can do everything, but I'm certainly happy to give it a go. If you've enjoyed what you've heard or if you found it at all helpful, please like it in the podcast platform that you are listening to this in. And other than that, I would just encourage everyone to look at a few pictures, especially with reference to the TIPS procedure and esophageal varices. If you don't know what it looks like, go ahead and take a look at it. A GI bleed where an esophageal varice has started bleeding and is leaking into the stomach and then that individual is throwing up significantly. It's unlike anything else I've probably ever seen in healthcare during the tenure of my time. Uh, over the last, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years doing this. So that's all I've got on esophageal varices. Go forth and keep on learning.